You're listening to Built Blocks, the podcast about cities, the built environment, architecture, and everything in between. This episode, we're speaking with Max Grinnell, the urbanologist. There are three questions on Max Grinnell's website. One, how do cities work? Two, why are people both fascinated and repelled by cities? And three, how can we improve cities? Grinnell has the answers. As an urbanologist, geographer, historian, and professor, Grinnell is an expert on urban design, planning, public art, the creative economy, and the history of cities. He's written books about cities, designed and taught courses on urban studies, community development, geography, planning, and sociology, and leads city tours of Chicago and Boston. That's why I wanted to interview him, especially when it comes to walking and seeing cities up close. Why are pedestrians treated as an afterthought in many cities? Why are cities so fascinating to walk around in? How can cities and the planners make walking easier? In this episode, we talk about walking, taking trains, technology's effect on walking, and how the new president-elect could impact the great inroads we've made the last decade to make cities more livable. Enjoy the show. Hi, Max. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, John. Great to be here with you. So um, I've been following you for a while on on um, the interwebs, which sounds really kind of creepy, almost stalking like. But I, <laughs> I, um, I, 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 one of the things that really intrigues me about you is that um, I believe you grew up in the um, you know, Seattle area and you moved um, eastward um, between Boston and Chicago. And um, I'm wondering, you know, I, I lived in um, Boston for a while and everybody asked me like, why are you coming east? Because people tend to migrate west. Yeah. So, so, so I love to hear, you know, your, your reasoning for going, you know, the other way in the country and, and maybe a little, talk a little bit about the, you know, the differences around, you know, how people get around each one of these cities that you've lived in. Yeah, of course. So my story, I grew up in Seattle, um, 2356 Franklin Avenue East, which is shortly actually going to be demolished for a condo building. This is another, this, this, the story of Seattle in the 21st century is a story of economic success. And I would also say displacement for many people. And, you know, the thing that I learned how to parse out my world is through just walking around. It was a safe neighborhood, not many kids. Um, that was kind of like a demographic lull for young people in Seattle, uh, mid-late 80s. And it was fascinating to me. Um, this was a neighborhood between the University of Washington, is a neighborhood between the University of Washington and downtown Seattle. And a mix of uses is on Lake Union, so there's some maritime action. We're butted on the east by I-5, which is, you know, is that wonderful ribbon of concrete that's usually a parking lot. And just to go up and down this little swath of land between these two different neighborhoods really kind of got me hooked on cities and being in cities and experiencing cities, their growth, their successes, their problems um, through these walks. And I was fortunate enough to get a very generous scholarship to go to the University of Chicago, and that's how I came out there at 18. But it's worth saying that when I was 15, uh, my dad got me an Amtrak pass. My parents were civil servants. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. And he said, why don't you take this 45-day Amtrak pass? At the time, I think it was $399. 
and go, you know, see the United States via train. My dad, then and now, fearful of plane trips. So we'd always grown up taking Amtrak, which seems probably pretty curious, um, considering the planes are, you know, hundreds of miles faster um, in terms of getting anywhere. So that's another one of those early sparks. And I did it, and I stayed at the youth hostels in Boston, Chicago, New Orleans, and I did uh, two weeks for at a program for precocious youth at the University of Virginia. And it was it was amazing. You know, here I was, this is 91, and then I did it again in 92, you know, pre-interwebs. I had the Lonely, uh, no, not Lonely Planet. I had a Let's Go USA, famously written by Harvard students, and some traveler's checks, and a, my dad's old Nicromat camera. And that's how I got around, you know, taking the T, taking the CTA, and these were really formative moments that gave me my own sense of independence and also solidified the feelings I'd had uh, as a little kid walking around my neighborhood in Seattle. Like, this is, this is amazing, the people I meet on the street. I also don't mind telling you that an early inspiration was the books of uh, Richard Scarry, so Busy, Busy World, um, and following the adventures of all those animals. Just I was like, wow, I, I, can, I can do this. Um, so thank you, Richard Scary. And then I came to, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. I was actually looking at busy, busy, I used busy, busy world with my urban study students and Chicago was, a, a dramatic and wonderful change from Seattle going to Hyde Park, which is, you know, one of the city's more, you know, racially, ethnically integrated neighborhoods. Um, but surrounded by tremendous poverty. It's a legacy of disinvestment, racism, and all the other things that are now in the air as we talk about cities. So it was interesting to hear how people talked about Hyde Park who were from Chicago, who had lived in the South Side and were now living in the suburbs and just, you know, also kind of amazing. Um, Hyde Park is kind of a bougie enclave surrounded by intense poverty, which some of that has improved in recent years. But when I arrived in 1994, it was certainly a very stark contrast. And I think that's the thing that interest me about cities today, uh, John, is that they really do have these, you can turn the corner and you'll be in a completely different neighborhood, um, which I think just presents an opportunity for understanding the world around us. Um, so before I go on the next question, I just have to say, I still own my copy of What Do People Do All Day by Richard Scarry. Still have oh, that. Man. Since the fifth grade. I mean, I just, since the fifth wow. grade, I still have that I, thing. I love, I love it. I love, it. yeah, some of those stories. And you look every page. There's a gold bug. You gotta look oh, for the gold bug. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> John, yeah. I'm, ba I'm bowing low to you on the other side, <laughs> on the other side of the United States um, from Boston. No, that's 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 fantastic. Much respect. So, so I, our journey sounds sort of similar. Um, I uh, grew up in San Diego, which is not known for its you know big walkability. And being a young kid, we would take the bus to downtown San Diego and walk around it. It was the big city at the time. It was a Navy town, peep shows and, um, you know, pinball and arcades. And it was kind of seedy. And then it, it, it got renovated into the, the gas lamp and then, uh, lived in San Francisco for a couple years. But then I moved to Boston in 2000. And one thing that really struck me between the difference between is that, um, there was no stigma in riding a bus in Boston. That's what you do. You know, you, you hop on the bus or you talk, hop on the T and, you know, we didn't have a car for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, when we walk, I mean, Boston is so walkable, we walked away. So I think for me, that was the, um, kind of the aha moment for me where it's like, okay, you can get around cities, mm. walk, walk, you know, you know, walking and, 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 and not having a car, which, um, you know, and then, and then 
that also kind of made me realize that I really, I really like walking more in urban setting, more so than in through a forest, um, you know, more so through suburbs. It's just, it's, it's a vibe that it's, it's a vibe that I get when I, when I walk and, and, and I'm wondering if there's, you know, a reasoning behind this. Is it just a personal preference that I, you know, like you, I like to come around the corner and there's a bookstore mm. or there's a pub or there's a, you know, cool building that so-and-so designed and I can nerd out and take a picture of it and take notes of it. Um, is, is there, is there a reason why some cities are just more apt to be like that than others? I think it is a matter of personal preference. And I think, and I'm more in your camp, though I do find when I can get out to a natural area, I'm kind of a, a couple hour hike. That's kind of me and I'm done. Um, I think having that kind of attentiveness to place through walking, as I always tell my students, with those things at the, the, the bottom of our legs, our feet, um, and also, you know, kind of trying to do it with less technology or even, God forbid, turning our phones all the way off, which is, you know, it's like cutting off a limb. I think that that kind of affects the experience as well, too. I, I you know, I've never, I've not seen a lot of, it's, it's, it would kind of be murky in terms of research, but I've not seen a lot of research on one, so why some people might prefer one or the other, but I know for myself that cities, you know, everything from the infrastructure, which of course we take for granted, and you know, can you imagine walking down a sidewalk, the Mag Mile, or Huntington Avenue and, you know, being just having an exposed sidewalk, right? You see the sewer system or something like that. We take it for granted in those things until those things start to break down. So I think even infrastructure along with a pub, along with a great, uh, you know, a repertory theater we're passing on the way or someplace with free range pumpkin pie or something. Um, <laughs> we, we really, we really can think about the way the city is, is set up and you don't have to be an engineer either, but it can, I think it provides those moments that will lead to ask, require us to ask questions, which we will then kind of seek out over a lifetime or maybe, you know, maybe we'll just go, we'll look on Wikipedia, but at least we're kind of learning and sensing that world that is right in front of us, which I think technology can aid that and technology can also just rip that right out of the uh, equation. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm and I'm finding too just um, that a, a, a lot of city locals and officials and and activists um, and I'm and I'm seeing I don't know if it's just because I'm more aware of it now, but I'm seeing more and more um, cities saying, okay, you know, we can we can attract younger residents or you know newer residents by making our cities uh, you know more more walkable. So and, I, and I'm not anti car by any mean. I mean you know I have a car. I drive to get to places, but but. You know, I have to say, um, you can tell a street pretty much immediately if it's built for people or or, or, or built for cars. And, and, and I'm wondering if if there's you know be, maybe between Boston, Chicago, there's there's good examples of cities who are are who maybe weren't super walkable 10, 15 years ago, who have you know taken the the helm and said, okay, we want to be more walkable. Let's make the city more friendly for, for pedestrians. Is, is there a good examples of cities across the North America that are doing that now? Yeah, there's definitely some, and actually places that one example I wanted to bring up from Chicago, you know, the thing in the sixties and seventies as central business districts declined was to 
put in pedestrian malls. So you take a long street thoroughfare, like State Street in Madison, Wisconsin, or conversely, State Street, that great street in Chicago, and say, all right, we're going to take off most cars, automobiles, private transit. We're going to build out the sidewalks, and hopefully people will come and stick around. Now, State Street, Chicago, it didn't work, and it was removed in the mid-'90s, and I think that was a successful project. Madison, because of the sheer number of students and the fact that it's about one mile State Street from the start of the University of Wisconsin campus and the Capitol, remains a success. Um, and those are some of those kind of early movers in terms of like, how do we get people back downtown? Interesting example I'd like to bring up is the case of Argyle Street in Chicago's uptown neighborhood, which is now and it has been for decades predominantly um, uh, an Asian immigrant entrepot of businesses, small businesses, Vietnamese, Chinese, etc., noodle stores, import stores, bakeries. And so the city came together to say, all right, we need to create, which is, has been gaining steam from Europe and other places, the shared street concept. So basically it's dropping down curb cuts, um, eliminating curbs entirely, actually, adding decorative pavers in a design that encourages people to walk across the street freely, which, you know, in some places they call jaywalking. Um, so the idea is to create, as they say, a shared street for cars, pedestrians, and also make it completely wheelchair accessible. Um, this is tough to do. You have to get buy-in from local merchants, many of whom have been used to having free, in quotes, because we know the cost of each parking space in cities is not free um, <laughs> in terms of land use. And it's also you, it's kind of a, you know, a cultural shift and uh, a mind shift in terms of thinking about how streets work. So Argyle, these are early days. The street's been open as a shared street the past few months. Um, another nice benefit is that the street, immediately above the street, is the Argyle stop on the red, CTA red line. So there's a lot of people coming out. Um, and we'll see how that goes. That's a, that's a good example. Pedestrian zones are kind of another thing. Uh, downtown crossing in Boston, which you may know. Um, obviously, vehicles go through it. But for much of the day and for special events, um, it is, you know, it's a pedestrian friendly zone. Boston this past summer also blocked off Newberry Street, the Haute Couture shopping uh, avenue that uh, runs into the public garden and terminates near the Mass Pike. And that was a success. Well, it was an entire day or half a day on a weekend and people loved it. Um, it's already a one way street parking on both sides. And, you know, it's quite hectic with people, you know, beeping and honking and crossing the street where they want. So in the future, we're going to see more of this. I mean, certainly other places have done this, Europe, European and Asian cities. So I think it's exciting to see that needle shift. I think you're right. People, people need cars, the whole automated, uh, you know, automated vehicles. That's a whole nother conversation to say nothing of automated trucks, but you know, we'll, we'll see what the future will bring, but I think there are some positive trends. And part of that, of course, is to attract people, young and old, who that's what they're really craving in cities. Um, you know, when, when, when I think about cities, I, and this is my prejudice, I usually think about mm. the, the sexy cities. I, I, I automatically go, you know. I, <laughs> I like I, put that, the sexy cities. Yeah, some are sexier than others, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, New York, Boston, you know. So um, um, I, I spoke um, on a couple episodes ago, um, the um, uh, blogger, he does um, Urban Cincy, and the, and the episode was all on Cincinnati. 
for me, it's it's just a great example. You know, it's not obviously on the coast. It's right in, you know, kind of in, in the middle. And it had an advantage because it already had a lot of the corporate headquarters there. So they they drew in younger people from different cities. But I'm wondering, you know, how, how can some of these smaller cities who are not, you know, mm. not, they're not, quote unquote, branded, they're not super... Uh, you know, well-known. I mean, how can smaller cities kind of take the helm? Like, you know what? We want to be a place where people want to move to. We want to make it accessible. We want to make it walkable. We want brew pubs and coffee shops or or, 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 or that sort of thing. Is there, um, you know, that probably could be a whole separate podcast, but is there some sort of a, a playbook or like a way to get on that path? Yeah. I mean, it's, you're right. And lots of places want to emulate this for any number of reasons, you know, the, the the dollar spent locally tends to circulate more, which is, you know, most research shows that that is completely true. And I think you need a cumulative mass of people in and around downtown. I don't know that there's a great metric on that, like 500 people in the street per hour, or et cetera, or so, so-and-so discrete visits. I think some people it's almost easier to get people who aren't from the immediate area to buy in because some people for a variety of, you know, just kind of local prejudice might say, well, downtown's been dumpy for the last 30 years. Why should I go back? I think one of the trends that we're seeing is what this commonly called is uh, place activation. So thinking about underutilized resources like alleys, um, you know, how can we get people to come to alleys, which sounds might sound somewhat um, uh, curious, but if you think about alleys and spaces that are underutilized, why not have a temporary art exhibit there? Why not have a pop-up beer garden, um, so on and so forth? And, of course, we've seen this in the recent, you know, kind of political divisions in this country is, you know, it's hard to keep young people in some of these declining towns. Not, not Cincinnati. Obviously, Cincinnati's doing a bang-up job. I'm a, I'm a Cincy convert. I hadn't given Cincy one thought until I started visiting eight years ago, and I'm a, I'm a junkie. I'm a, I'm a Cincophile. But I think we see this mirrored in kind of the political divisions right now is young people either don't want to stay around some of these places because they're, quite frankly, are no jobs, or either they feel like it's, you know, either because of something, maybe ethnicity, sexual orientation, et cetera, you know, the big, bigger cities are where they want to be. So you're left with aging, declining populations in which the downtown is a shadow of itself and not to be rude, but the folks that are still around, you know, they may not be that aspirational. So what do you, what do you do? I don't think there's a good metric in terms of how many numbers of people you need to get downtown, but getting the people downtown is tough. You have to have, you know, Real big local buy-in. I mean, to say nothing of a local chamber of commerce that's committed to it. And, of course, the, just the changing scale of retail, right? You know, And I don't mean just Walmart, but like larger stores that are what they call category killers, right? You're downtown and you sell 50 nails for $2. Well, okay, you can go out to the big box and they're selling – 5,000 nails for a buck or something. I mean, and of course, you repeat that across every category of consumer good. You know, you, you got to do something unique. And the funny thing I always think about some of these smaller towns related to what you're talking about is like, how many more damn fudge shop stores do they need? <laughs> fudge is not going to fudge is not going to revitalize any small declining, declining downtown. Fudge cannot be responsible to bring back people downtown. Um, but th- so thinking creatively and of course in some of these places where there's not a lot of money to kick around either in terms of some 
you know, uh, legacy resident who has, you know, who's been there 15 generations with a bunch of money, um, or some company to come in, you know, PepsiCo, Walmart, or whatever, and donate funds and resources is to think kind of thinking creatively on the cheap, which is which is tough. Um, and it's not to say it has to be young people or millennials, but it, you do need a good coalition of people who are going to sustain it over time. Which in some of these small t- smaller towns, those people have moved on. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the fudge um, theory, I mean, I have a, a similar theory, and it's completely anecdotal, but but because I've been doing some sort of research about main, <clears throat> main streets and and beer. And my whole thing is that when a brewery or a tap room comes to your dying Main Street, that that means you've arrived. It's kind of like the new Whole Foods. Yeah. When that comes to town, uh, it's like, oh, that means that means someone somewhere did research and said, hold on here. If I put a tap room on this dying Main Street, maybe, you know, it, it means it. It, it it means maybe they know something that the people that living on the dying main street don't know that there's a market there for that. And that, that goes for, that kind of goes for cupcakes too, I guess, <laughs> you know, yeah, when, the, when the, cupcake, the cupcake, cupcake shop. <laughs> a brewery that sells cupcake flavored beer. That's, um, that's right. <laughs> good. You could put it together. I mean, I think you're right. It is kind of the uniqueness of it and also the branding and the imaging of it. You know, that's why some creative consultants work on these type of projects. I think, you know, uh, from a historical standpoint, prohibition was again, you know, kind of the category killer for breweries. Some of whom we switched over to making sodas and things of that nature. But you know, we're now just seeing that resurgence. I mean, craft breweries are less than you know ten percent of total volume, but well positioned, as you suggest, and I think your anecdotal research, there's something there. Is it can be kind of a, a, a catalyst, you know, they can be a good partner and, you know, quite frankly, you know, unless you're in a, a dry County or, you know, it's, it's seen as a tourist attraction for inward investment, you know, people will say, Oh, well, I might drive that distance and locals can use it as a gathering space as well too. I think, you know, and of course, another good example of those type of third, third place is a uh, coffee house. But of course, coffee house is, they also sell addictive substances, but they're not open late <laughs> at night. Usually, I mean, it's, right. it's hard to do the numbers on a on a small coffee house in a smaller downtown. Why would they be open at ten o'clock at night? There's no reason. So I'm going to switch gears here and and, and, sure. and, t- and talk about your tours. And and I have to say, I uh, um, I do um, a Portland history blog, and I kind of feel like well, and and there's a local, there's a couple local companies here that do local history tours. I'm like, I don't need to go on those. I know everything about Portland, but, but my, <laughs> but I, I, I chaperone my daughter's, uh, um, uh, uh, Portland old town, Chinatown walking tour about a month ago. And I was blown away by it because, you know, these buildings, you see them, you know, about them, you know, when they were built, you know, the architect, you know, some of the history, but we spent most of our time on this two hour tour in just three buildings. And, you know, it just, it, it really, and this sounds really obvious, but it really humanized the building for me and brought it, brought it to life. So I, I, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, some of your own tours and, and, and what you want it, want your participants to get, a, get away, not get away, but get from these tours when they're, they're done, you know, with the tour. I've always been interested in providing an experience that, as you suggest, humanizes the built environment, could be buildings, particularly in my work, public art and culture, uh, historic preservation details, 
that's what when people come on one of my tours um, in Chicago or Boston, you know, I do Back Bay and a tour of the Fens and a tour in Chicago of the Public Art in the Loop uh, and of Lincoln Park, among others, is I want people to come away with a sense of the richness of both the human history in these neighborhoods, but also the things that have kind of made these neighborhoods unique through could be planning development, um, could be an industrial past, and really to get into the level of details that these eminently walkable neighborhoods, most of them, can can give us. And it's interesting you mentioned the experience of saying, oh, I've been in this place, I know it, because I never went on, and it is truly a world-famous tour, the Bill Speedles Underground Tour in Seattle when I was growing up. And then five years ago, I went with my niece, and they take you under the street level in Pioneer Square, the city's oldest uh, residential neighborhood. And I was blown away. You know, tell the story of the Seattle fire, telling the story of the merchants that set up shop. And you walk onto the street and you're like, what's what's next? What's kind of around this corner? Um, great narration and great meticulous historical research, which are things I bring to my own tours um, as well. And getting those groups of people, I don't do tours more than 15 people at a time, because I really like to have that personal experience with people on my tours. Um, I also do a lot of private tours for architects, uh, folks, students visiting Boston and Chicago from other places. And that's exciting, too, just to have those kind of see that excitement on their face. You know, I'm old school, too. I don't I don't take out the iPad. I don't do that kind of thing. I, I really kind of try to commune with people in place in, a, in an era where we're always on our damn phones. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I encourage take all the pictures you want. Um, let's take, let's take pictures together for God's sakes, but kind of that experience of, you know, walking around a neighborhood and uh, I've been doing these programs for the Chicago public library the last couple of years that have explored Chicago's cultural history and the culinary history in the city. And that's been great to have a lot of people who lived in the city decades longer than I have to say, come up and say, well, I learned something new. And that's, uh, as you know, as an educator, you know how it goes. I mean, as an educator and as, and as a historian and as someone who cares about cities and their future, you know, I'm, uh, I'm flattered to have, their, to have their kind words. It's really, I love it. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about technology. And, and on this tour, I, mean, I, was, I, I didn't bring up my phone once, which is a miracle. But uh, some of the kids, some of the kids were doing the, the Pokemon thing, and they got yelled at. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, sure, but, sure, sure, sure. Catch them all. That's right. That's right. But but one of the things I wanted to bring up was just technology, and and I love it and I hate it because you know um, I've got the Fitbit, and it uh, tells me, you know, when I've hit my ten thousand steps. But it also it doesn't shame me. But when I'm under ten thousand, I feel shame. So it's it's uh, it's running my it's it's ruining my life. Not ruining my life, but kind of running my life. <laughs> but but I also like um, you know um, I mentioned when I sent the questions over, um, you know, taking these kind of rambling walks, but then at the end of it looking at my app and going, Oh, I, I, I walked here, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's kind of fun. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you put your devices away, you, it just, you know, on this tour, it was just more of an organic, you know, you, you, it was more, it was more humanized. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, you're, I'd love to see your take on, um, you know, how, how tech, um, can, um, you know, help, enhance the, 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 the walking experience or, you know, how, how it gets in the, in the way of it. I, I've not used many. I was going to say that one I have, I have liked 
which I suppose is, is more practical given the human condition, is uh, sit or squat, which actually reveals public bathrooms. Um, so, and it, there's even there's even uh, reviews, if if you will. So, I mean, if you think about things that are common to the human condition and the quest, especially as you know, in a big city for a clean bathroom, um, folks should take a look at sit or squat. That's one of those real practical. Um, ones. And I also have a couple other kind of general uh, favorites as well, uh, too, that I've thought were they're pretty good. Um, just like a local app is kind of cool. Um, I've used that to kind of get around sometimes. Um, that's kind of neat. It has places people have marked um, and also, you know, small reviews. Uh, I think that's pretty useful. I've not used any of the kind of the more historical walking tour ones, but, uh, you know, I've heard good things about them as well. I generally am either trying to take pictures and I've turned my Wi-Fi off <laughs> when I'm walking around. Um, so it's a little less uh, intrusive. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Pokemon Go, but there were so many pieces right when it came out that's, you know, Pokemon Go will change cities forever and, you know, it will never be the same. I mean, for God's sake, they said that thing about, they said the same thing about the Segway. Um and the Segway has just provided another opportunity for tour operators, which is great for them. But I don't think it's, you know, aided the cause of how affordable housing or, you know, social injustice or other other war. Shall, I'll say more weighty matters. Um, so those are a couple. There's a couple of the apps that I've enjoyed. My last question. And I don't even know if we want to go here, but um, we have a new president elect. And, I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 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 and, you know. The podcast focuses mostly on cities and architecture, and you know, I, I listen. I, I put my city nerd specs on, you know, during a lot of of um, the debates and just what he has said. And I don't think he's a big fan of the cities. I'm just, it's, it's, it's just my gut take. So, I, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, um, I, I know a lot of these, a lot of city programs, whether it's, um, um, you know, bike share or, you know. Um, um, different types of transportation, you know, a lot of, or light rail, it's all, a lot of it's federal funds. Um, um, this means two things to me. It means that a lot of these funds are going to be cut off or cities are going to have to really start looking inward and maybe even going hyper local, like, you know, instead of blocks and blocks and blocks, you know, maybe the, maybe the neighbors going to have to get together and go, okay, you know, we, there's this really shitty intersection in our city. We're, 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 we're hosed. We're not going to get funds from anybody. So, um, we need to buckle up and, you know, do something about this ourselves. So I'm, I'm, I'm on one side of the fence. I'm like, we're hosed on their side. It's like, maybe this is going to bring back, um, super local. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm heartened by that. And I share, I think most of your optimism, you know, he has not made, many formal any formal urban policies except to in this in this speech last month in charlotte to be offensive towards african americans um and everyone else um with his kind of you know un, failure to understand the demographics of cities or and more specifically where african americans do and don't live in cities there, you know, I haven't seen any specific proposals. I think you're right in the sense that I think cities will have to continue to lead the way as I feel that they did through uh, George W. Bush's terms as well in terms of thinking about how we can work locally. Of course, things like climate change are not 
hyper-local or localized to cities or their attendant uh, outlying regions. So this is, of course, much more concerning. I don't know that uh, a future president has really offered anything tangible. He's mentioned in this same speech last month in Charlotte, he mentioned uh, kind of some usual kind of, I would say, traditional Republican canards, more school choice for disenfranchised city residents, uh, more police, which of course is already happening in some cities. Chicago's hiring a, a new cadre of police. Uh, he's, he briefly talked about tax holidays for inner city investment. Um, this has been done before, um, and he also kind of creating special investment zones. Cities, we've been here before with cities. Uh, HUD, Housing Department of Housing and Urban Development, created enterprise zones throughout many American cities starting in the mid-90s. Some were successful, some were not. So we haven't really seen much new from him. And I think as in keeping with what we have, or more accurate, we don't know about what will happen, is that we don't really know um, if he'll if he'll come up with anything specifically for cities. Um, I, I hope that he um, gets better information um, in the future, in the coming months. Uh, but I don't I don't think we really know what we will see in terms of any specific uh, urban policies. He also used the term urban renewal, which uh, for many people living in cities is uh, a loaded term. Uh, I believe it was James Baldwin who referred to it accurately as Negro removal. Um, so this is a term that is loaded with lots of connotations, most of which are not positive. So I will just say that I hope he gets better and more detailed information on about our nation's cities before any uh, sustainable or long-term federal policies are made regarding urban areas. Well, yeah, the next four years, but maybe hopefully two years, <laughs> are going to be interesting. It, and I'm it could be, fingers. yes, it could be very interesting. And it is, there is a... a, a a tragedy and irony, et cetera, that, as we said before, with, you know, 8 million New Yorkers, and this is the one we got, um, one who's not terribly in touch with the city. Um, he's, he's certainly made and lost a lot of money off of cities, um, his investments in cities. But, yeah, I think we're just going to have to wait and see how things shape up. Thanks so much for, for being on today. This was awesome. Um, I have a million more questions, but I'll, 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 I'll let you go. And um, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you for having me, John. Thanks for listening to Built Blocks. If you'd like more info on Max, visit his site, theurbanologist.com. He also has a new email newsletter out called On the Street. To get it delivered to your inbox, go to tinyletter.com the Urbanologist, and sign up. If you'd like to read more on this episode, visit BuiltBlocks.com. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave a review for me. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening. See you next time.